Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, this episode of Other People is brought to you by Stitcher Smart Radio. You can hear this podcast while on the go with Stitcher Smart Radio a free news and talk mobile app available right now for your smartphone. And hey, when you download Stitcher, you have a chance to win some money. Downloading is quick and easy. Just find Stitcher in the App Store, download it, it's free, it takes just a few seconds, and then when you register, hit the promo code box. It should say, tell us how you heard about Stitcher, where it says that, enter the promo code other people. When you do that, you're automatically entered to win 100 bucks. The latest episode of the program will then be waiting for you in your favorites, and you'll get access to a ton of other amazing content, always available on demand with no syncing. That's the Stitcher app. Go download it at stitcher.com, free of charge, available for your iPhone, your Android, or your tablet computer, and don't forget to enter the promo code OTHERPEOPLE when you register. This is an app. You can apply it. Go and get it. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. All right, everybody, right. here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is me ravaged by sleep deprivation. This is you falling asleep while I talk. How are you today? How uh, how are you? Did I just say that? Hope things are good out there. I'm Brad Listy, and I'm sitting here in Los Angeles. It's very nice to be with you. I'm going to be talking with Renee Denfeld in just a moment. She has her debut novel out. It's called The Enchanted. Uh, but first, I wanted to tell you a story. It's kind of a funny story from the other night. Here in Los Angeles, uh, I was out to dinner with some friends. I was in Los Feliz. I went to see uh, Melissa Broder. She was reading at Skylight Books. You know Melissa Broder, the poet. Uh, she's been on this program before. You can listen to her via Other People Premium. But uh, anyway, she was reading at uh, Skylight. I wanted to go over and uh, support the cause. So uh, I went over there and I had some dinner with some friends and some drinks and when I was done, and we were about to walk out of the restaurant and go over to the bookstore uh, for the reading, uh, I first went to the men's room. Okay? I had to use the facilities. 
And uh, the, the facilities at this restaurant, uh, it's pretty simple. You have a men's room and a ladies room. And uh, to get to the bathrooms, you have to enter a kind of uh, anteroom, a small, dark chamber <laughs> behind a door. And then, you know, once you've entered that anteroom, you, uh, you have the men's room straight ahead and the ladies room on your right. Do you follow me? So uh, I enter this darkened anteroom and uh, I find that the door to the men's room is locked. So I have to wait. And uh, I'm standing there in darkness waiting my turn. And as I'm doing this, the door behind me opens. And, and this is the door leading from the restaurant into the small, dark anteroom. It's kind of like a closet almost. It's about the size of a, a large closet. So I hear this door open and I sort of glance over my shoulder slightly, but I don't turn all the way around because I'm waiting for the bathroom. I'm facing forward. Uh, but when I glance backwards briefly, I catch uh, a glimpse of a gentleman about my age, tall. He's a large man. He's probably like six foot three. And he's standing behind me waiting in line. And uh, I can hear him breathing in this small, dark, confined space. So, uh, like about a minute goes by. Maybe not even a minute. Maybe like 45 seconds. And uh, the two of us are standing there in this uh, confined space. And for anyone who listens to this program with uh, regularity, you know how you know you know how I am uh, when I'm on elevators. I, I will talk to someone. I'm not afraid of that. And you know when I'm on a, you know when I'm on an elevator with one other person, I feel like it's strange not to talk. Or so I've told you on this show. But on this occasion, I was not inclined to talk. Because it was dark. And I was facing the bathroom door. And I'm waiting in line, you know. I was just there to do my business. <laughs> and so, uh, I'm standing there. And I can hear this guy breathing. And, and breathing normally, I should add. It's not like he was, like... It wasn't like heavy breathing <laughs> or weird breathing in any way. He was just breathing, and it was just the two of us in this small space. So uh, there we are standing there, and suddenly I hear this guy's voice behind me, and he says to me uh, in a deep uh, baritone, looks like you're going to have some company. <laughs> and uh, when I heard this, when I heard this man say, it looks like you're going to have some company, well... Uh, a lot of things flashed through my mind very quickly. First of all, uh, I remembered, because I had been to this uh, particular restaurant before, I remembered that there's only one toilet in the men's room. It's a single toilet facility, one for the men, one for the ladies. So uh, after he said this, I was immediately thinking, uh, well, maybe this guy doesn't realize that it's just a, a one commode unit. <laughs> maybe he's thinking that there's multiple stalls, he's really got to go. Uh, perhaps he's in an emergency situation, and so on. And then the other thing uh, that flashed through my mind was, uh, is this guy picking up on me? Is this some kind of line? Did I send some sort of inadvertent uh, signal that might have misled this gentleman into thinking that, I, uh, that I'm receptive to uh, amorous advances? 
And then finally, uh, I imagined uh, this man violently raping me and then killing me in the men's room. <laughs> and, I, and I thought all of these things within a span of about seven seconds, five seconds. I don't even know. It just all raced through my mind at once. So uh, there I am. I turn around. And what I say to the guy is, uh, I'm sorry, but I think there's only one toilet in there. So... And uh, the guy has this like blank expression on his face. And uh, he kind of cuts me off and he shakes his head and he, and he, he says, no, 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 no. And he, and he points down and to his right. And uh, he's pointing at the ladies' room and there is an out-of-order sign on the uh, ladies' room door. <laughs> so what he meant was, it looks like you're going to have some company in there, meaning it looks like there might be women in there too. As opposed to, uh, I want to rape you in the bathroom and then murder you. <laughs> so, I don't know why I got so paranoid. It's weird. I think it's just because it was dark. It was this weird space. So, anyhow, it, it, ended, up, you know, it ended up being really funny. And as soon as this guy pointed to the sign and, I, and it all clicked and I understood what he was talking about, I started laughing and I said... Uh, I told him, I said, you know, I totally misunderstood you there for a second. I thought that you wanted to pee with me, <laughs> uh, which was another thing that I thought, like, I thought he wanted to come in, you know, have, he thought I was going to have some company, thought he wanted to be my company and we were going to both pee together in one toilet at the same time. <laughs> so I told him this, I, I was like, I thought you were suggesting that we pee together, uh, in one toilet and like cross streams and, you know. Fortunately, this guy had a good sense of humor. He was laughing. It wasn't as weird as I'm making it sound. I mean, it was just like, you know, it was a misunderstanding <laughs> in a restaurant uh, anteroom. And uh, the guy was, a, he was a good dude. And then uh, finally, the, like a woman who was in the bathroom ahead of us, she finally exited and uh, it was my turn. And uh, as I was entering the, the bathroom, the guy called out behind me uh, in a whispering voice, uh, talk to me while I pee. <laughs> uh, I kid you not. That's what he said. So he was funny. And uh, there you go. A very important story that needed to be told publicly. I felt compelled to share it with you. I like those tiny little moments of misunderstanding in life. Those moments of like micro paranoia. That sometimes happen. To me, anyway. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. 
Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest once again is Renee Denfeld. She is an accomplished uh, journalist who has written for the New York Times Magazine and the uh, Oregonian, among others. She is also a licensed investigator who specializes in death penalty work. Her debut novel uh, is called The Enchanted. It involves death row, and uh, it is available now from Harper Books. Very pleased to have Renee here on the program. We had a really interesting talk, and uh, I think you're going to enjoy it. So here she is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Renee Denfeld, and her new novel, once again, is called The Enchanted. I am in Portland, Oregon, and I'm actually in my house. I have a big house in North Portland, an area called the St. John's neighborhood. Um, kind of an old blue collar, yeah. working class neighborhood. Yeah, yeah, I grew up around here. Okay. I, I talked to, and I'm forgetting, it's Amber Smith. That's her name. I got to believe that's it. Is that right? She's a writer from that neighborhood. And then I just talked to Willie Vlaughton, who I think has a, an apartment in that neighborhood. So yep, yeah, he does. He has a. He actually writes uh, down the street from me. It's kind of a little. Well, Portland in general is kind of a hotbed of writers, and no kidding. This area in particular has quite a few. So, and it's a, just a great place to raise fa- a family. I have three kids, and I'm still a very Compared to a lot of cities, uh, it has a decent standard of living for a writer and an artist, which is unusual nowadays. Well, okay, so how did you wind up there? Are you from there? Uh, not originally. My family was from the East Coast, but I came here when I was uh, quite little, raised by a single mom. We lived in the Northeast area, which is uh, was at that time kind of known as the ghetto. Uh, my mom was... Uh, had a lot of difficulties, so I had a, a pretty troubled childhood, but in some ways a very lucky one. Had a lot of very interesting life experiences that I think, uh, as I've gotten older, I've been able to use uh, to my advantage. So, okay, yeah, because, I mean, the work that you do, I was wondering about that, because, um, you know, you uh, work with people on death row, correct? That's correct. And then you've adopted three um, children, from the foster yeah. foster care service. So I feel like people who do that kind of work, which by the way, I, I feel is like really noble uh, work, you know, and, and I feel like we need more people who are willing to reach out in that way to people who are in need. Um, but I often feel like people who do that kind of work have gone through some stuff in life. And yeah, you know, I think that's really common. Yeah. But I, but you know what, it is common, but at the same time, not everybody makes that, um, that transition. Not everybody goes through that kind of uh, alchemical process where they take the rough stuff from their life and turn it into um, gold, uh, mm-hmm. you know, just to continue the metaphor. So how, like when you say that your mother had troubles, was it like a substance abuse? Did you have like a, a difficult childhood and like a, uh, I don't know, like what was the, do you, can you talk about the particulars of what you went through? Yeah, sure. Uh, well, my mother was uh, alcoholic and actually had mental health issues as well. And um, she was a single mom, as I mentioned. Uh, we had different fathers growing up. <laughs> you know, I can describe it now as a very colorful existence. Of course, at the time, it, it didn't feel, well, it, it perhaps felt colorful, but also very difficult. Um, I'm actually the only white sibling in my family. Uh, my brothers and my sister all had uh, African-American fathers. 
And uh, we were living in a largely African-American, very low-income neighborhood, uh, very rough, um, and uh, kind of had a lot of men coming and going in the house. Um, when I was nine, my stepdad actually went off to prison, uh, armed robbery and rape charges, uh, which kind of gives you a, a good insight into some of the particulars of my young life. Yeah. Um, but as you, yeah, as you mentioned, I, I think I got to a point in my life in my 20s where I decided that I'm, I, like a lot of people with my background, I turned out to be a bit of a risk taker. And I thought, you know, if I keep taking bad risks, I'm not going to be around for very long. <laughs> and I kind of got to this point where I just thought, you know, I'm going to take these challenges I've had and turn them into strengths and take healthy risks and risks that benefit other people and try to do something good with what I've learned, you know, in my life. And, and you know, that's led me not just to adopting kids from foster care, but into the death penalty work, which I, I find incredibly rewarding. Okay. So getting to the, tran- like from the transition from risk-taking young person, because I have to imagine there was some rebellion and some difficulty in adolescence as you were coping with all of this. Like when you talk about the risks that you were taking, like what kind of risks? Well, I was out on my own at a young age, actually. I was 15, um, out on my own, um, basically on the streets. Um, and as you can imagine, you know, life for a petite little 15-year-old girl, uh, being homeless was not easy at all. Uh, and you know, I went through a, a great deal of struggles. I, I was very, it's funny to say you're lucky, but I think I was lucky in some regards. I mean, I was um, reasonably intelligent. I had the the one virtue of having discovered books early in my life. And so I have memories even of being 15 and out in the streets, and I would go to the, the downtown library. Uh, I was out of the neighborhood I'd grown in, up in, where I'd always, you know, go hang out at the local library and read all day. And uh, going into the downtown library and just, you know, drying off and reading books and kind of escaping into story. Um, but alongside that came, you know, a lot of the typical things that teenagers out on the streets do, you know, a lot of risky stuff, drugs, alcohol, so forth. Um, you, did you ever struggle? Mm-hmm. Did you struggle with addiction on your own? Because I know that can sometimes be passed down through family line. Like, I, I guess there's a genetic component to it or did, did it miss you? You know, I've been very lucky. My Some of my siblings have. Uh, sadly, I lost my older brother um, to suicide, which... I think came in part um, from his addiction. It's a lot of a lot of loss in my family, but it seems to have missed me. I uh, use substances today. I socially drink. I just don't seem to have the same kind of chemical response that other people in my family do. Right. Uh, but I certainly took my chances. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the thing is that I, I, you know, I've seen friends deal with it. I'm lucky. Like I just don't have whatever it is that goes off in a, in a person who has that that curse, you know, it's, uh, it has to be genetic, right? I can't imagine that it's not. It seems so biological and innate. Yeah. To me, it seems like a combination. My experience is, you know, that it's, there's a genetic component, but, but often kind of some environmental factors that seem to trigger it or set it off. I mean, right. I'm sure there seems to be a level there might be genetically, you know, have a predisposition, but then they, they don't, engage in the heavy drinking or the experimental drug use or whatever that's going to set off um, the addiction. And, um, well, and, mm-hmm. and your brother uh, who took his own life, like, uh, w- were you a child when this happened? 
I uh, know. Actually, it was just several years ago. Um, so I'm still, uh, unfortunately, you know, grieving through that process. Uh, you know, there's. I think when you have a lot of trauma in your life, uh, things. You know, I had a counselor that told me once that most people in my background usually end up in, you know, either dead or in prison. And unfortunately, that's kind of borne out to be true in my family. Um, people either have survived it or just kind of got pulled under. Uh, so we're most of us either dead or <laughs> in prison, and the few of us that have made it seem to be doing okay. Wow. And so... Well, like, how did you make it? You know, like you said, you had the the you know the the refuge of the library and books uh, that you you know mm-hmm. you sort of had that inkling from a young age. And if you're out on the streets, you know, libraries are good places to hang out, especially if you're up in Portland and it's rainy. You know, like <laughs> yeah, um, I think the books were huge. So okay, so did you graduate high school? No, I did not. I um, you know being out on the streets and homeless, uh, not by choice. You know, really doesn't a situation where you end up showing up to, to school. Um, I ended up I ended up getting finally, you know, I kind of frankly crawled myself out of the circumstance. I got different under-the-table jobs, you know, um, different, you know, I remember working on a hot dog cart at one point selling, selling weenies in the street. <laughs> and, <laughs> uh, you know, I just, you know, I was also lucky, I think, to have a, a certain degree of this survival instinct. Um, I just kept trying and trying um, and ended up finally getting off the streets, renting a, a little room in a punk rock house, which was another big thing. Uh, growing up in Portland in the 80s, there was this, this huge explosion, this this wonderful alternative music scene. And I was very lucky to actually kind of be befriended by a lot of these people and taken into their slovenly trashed out party houses, <laughs> uh, which for me were absolute sanctuary. I ended up, you know, getting quite involved in the punk scene at the time. Um, Doing what? So if you're familiar with alternative, oh, um, to my embarrassment, I tried to sing, uh, of which I have no talent. But you know, that's, uh, you're in the right genre. You're in the right genre. Like that's what punks, <laughs> uh, you know, they they allowed for that. You know, I can. Um, I tell you, I think the, uh, the, the 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 it's probably embarrassing, but I had the honor of probably being one of the few people that was fired from being a punk rock singer for <laughs> for being. <laughs> being so terrible um, at it. Uh, but I didn't end up uh, getting uh, my equivalency and, uh, you know, years later going back and taking some university classes. But mostly you're self-taught. Yes, absolutely. As a, a writer, I'm almost completely self-taught. I occasionally volunteer in low-income schools in the neighborhood I grew up, grew up in, and uh, I always tell the kids... Um, I think one of the best ways to become a writer is just to read. And I've just been a copious reader for all of my life. You know, it sounds it sounds so elemental, but I think it's underdone. I don't think people read. I mean, there are some writers who read a lot, and they tend to write a lot. Um, but I think if you don't have enough input, it's going to be hard to have any output. And there's a surprising number of people who, who self-identify as writers out there who don't read books. Or don't read, you know, they read a lot on the internet or they read a lot on their phone or whatever, but it's, you know, uh, I, I think that that's a real thing. And, uh, you know, it's something mm-hmm. that, like, I've caught myself being like, do I read enough? Do I, I need to sit down with books and stop, uh, you know, surfing the internet constantly? No, I think I think you're absolutely right. And I think, you know, if you read a lot, and I 
you know, I've just been a voracious reader since a very young age. And I think what happens is you kind of absorb, without knowing it, you absorb so much about how to be a writer. You absorb, you know, uh, the rules and, you know, the tricks and techniques and basically the skill set that you need. Um, and so to this day, I can't really name the things I know. Um, I, I drive copy editors crazy because they'll say, well, you need to watch for this dangling whatever. <laughs> I have absolutely no idea what they're talking about. Um, but, you know, whether you know the names of the things that you're doing or not, you know, you can learn them by reading, I think. Yeah. Well, just, yeah, uh, I think I think that's something that writers often do maybe better. Like people who become writers maybe have an innate gift for kind of assimilating what they see on the page into their own language. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's a point where you kind of absorb the skill set. And then I think the place where artistry comes in is when you give it your own language. You kind of fall into that tunnel that I felt writing this novel, and what comes out is is something completely brand new. So, so when did you? I mean, I know you were reading when you were on the streets, and you were in this kind of uh, turbulent period in your late adolescence, early adulthood. But when did you start thinking to yourself, like, I want to write? Uh, I was actually tending bar. I was just turned twenty-one and gotten a job tending bar in this punk rock club, which uh, became very famous in Portland. It was called the Blue Gallery. And it was a punk club, punk rock club by night and an art gallery by day. And in fact, like the final week we were open, um, we later called it the Curse of Courtney. Hole was supposed to play the night that we got shut down by the, the fire marshal. Okay. Uh, but bands like, <laughs> nope, absolutely true. Uh, bands like Melvin's and Chumbawamba and Poison Idea, just a lot of bands that became later very well known played there. And um, I actually was working there, and, you know, having been a huge reader and escaping into books, I always dreamed kind of of being a writer, And um, but I didn't think somebody from my background could really do it. And I was very lucky. I, I met this group of local writers that were running this little alternative newspaper, and they asked me, you know, we're talking, sitting around the bar one night and talking about books and you know, I found this commonality being able to talk about all these great books we'd read, and I talked about wanting to be a writer, and they said, well, why don't you try to write something for us? And what was, and it, what was the name of the weekly? I was called PDXS, and it was a little every-other-weekly alternative, kind of a muckraking, investigative reporting kind of rag that ran reviews of music and books and stuff like that. So what I think was... I got paid $10 for my first piece. Okay, and what were you, I mean, what was your early, what were your early efforts? Were you writing reviews, or were you immediately out there raking muck? Uh, I started by writing reviews, and very quickly started raking muck. I mean, I, I actually was run by these fabulous um, investigative reporters who had left the local weekly, and so I was really blessed to kind of get trained on the ground by these, um, you know, real kind of hard-nosed, good field reporters who had a lot of skills in it. And, you know, I, for somebody that did have a bit of a risk-taking streak, I loved it. You know, I was more than happy to go <laughs> talk to people and pound on doors and ask questions. Okay, so let's, I want to ask you about this, because this is something I have, like, a you know, a little bit more than a passing fascination in. It, it, you know, how to be a good reporter, how to go out and find a story, you know? Like, how does the process work, like, from, you know, from the beginning to actually going out there into the field and doing the actual investigation, you know? Can you talk mm -hmm. about can you talk about how you 
you know, if there's one, if you can draw on like a particular story that might have, uh, you know, might be uh, loom large in your memory or something, I'd, I'd love to hear you talk about that process. Oh, sure. Um, well, it's a good thing. I think the first thing that needs to be done that's the hardest part for a lot of people is you have to have an idea. Uh, and for that, you know, it helps to be really kind of tied in with a community or out there talking to different people and hearing about things that, you know, you can't really be a reporter, I don't think, by sitting at a desk and being on the Internet all the time. And then you're just kind of recycling the same thing. So I remember one point after I was writing for them, I started freelancing a bit for the local daily. And I remember, I don't remember where I first, I had some friends of friends, you know, having adopted my kids, I kind of had a lot of this growing circle of people that had special needs kids were all tied into issues affecting people with special needs or developmental disabilities. And I got to know these people and found out that they had been sterilized against their will in a local institution called Fairview. And I remember the process of going, oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that we forcibly sterilized people, or used to. And kind of getting that idea and then starting the, the digging process of, well, you know, you know, did we? How do I find that out? And I think that's kind of the exciting part part of investigative journalism is like kind of putting your head down and thinking, well, how am I going to learn this? And it turned out uh, that, in fact, they had, and I had to do a lot of digging to kind of confirm this information because this institution had been closed, and I was told that a fire had destroyed all their records and that I wouldn't be able to verify that they, in fact, had been sterilizing people against their will. Isn't that always the case? Like something destroyed the <laughs> records. I feel like I've heard that before. <laughs> I know. And, you know, you hear that and you think, oh, I think that's a big thing with, that I was lucky to have been taught from these, these other, you know, real kind of pit bull reporters at that time, was um, I was taught the old saying, I don't know if you've heard this before, but if your mother says that she loves you, check it out. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, that just try and try again, and that that sometimes information, you know, might have been stored someplace else. You know, that you just keep trying. And as it turned out, there had been a fire, and the records had been destroyed. But I started this process of just kind of asking around and calling people and anybody I could think of uh, to see if anybody had any of these records. And it turned out that some of the records had, in fact, been stored, I think it was in the offices of an ARC, um, if I remember right. And so I was actually able to track down some records that had been sent out of the institution and stored someplace else, and I was able to actually track them down and um, verify the information. So I think, you know, as far as kind of the techniques of reporting, it's kind of real basic stuff, but it's, you know, it's shoe leather. You yeah, know, it's, it's kind of getting getting out there talking to people. Most people are, are really nice and actually more than happy to help you if you just I was going to ask, though, because sometimes if you're dealing with sensitive information or information that people would prefer was not made public, like have you ever dealt with, uh, like, you know, resistance? Have you ever dealt with threats? Um, more so in, in my, you know, I transitioned from doing that to my current job, which is um, as a death penalty investigator, and I've had more than a one time I've, you know, been threatened and gotten a face full of spit in that, that job. Um, but so, yeah, somebody, like, somebody spit in your face? <laughs> yes, actually, that, that has happened. Um, 
you know, and, that, and actually the part of the reason I transitioned to my current work is the skill set of a reporter is very similar to a death penalty investigator, and I, I really needed a day job. And so, you know, I also, I basically I get hired by the attorneys who are representing men and women who are facing execution, and I conduct this investigation into the client's life to find out who they were and why they did what they did. Um, which means tracking down all these witnesses, long ago witnesses from their life, you know, their relatives, childhood friends, ex um, inmates in jail. Uh, See, this sounds, this, this sounds mm-hmm. so fascinating to me. This sounds like really, I mean, it's for, for uh, a person who loves story and for a person mm-hmm. who likes to write stories, this is ideal. Uh, actually, and that's what I love about it more than anything. I mean, it's, can be incredibly grim and very, very sad, but just about, you know, every time I'm out doing this job, I mean, people honor me with their stories. They they share their stories with me. I'm just kind of immersed in other people's lives and stories, and I think that's actually absolutely wonderful. Okay, so so how did you get mm -hmm. into this? Like, you you were writing for this uh, every other weekly. You were doing investigative Mm -hmm. pieces. Um, and then it, did you go straight from that into this death, uh, death penalty investigative stuff, or did you do anything in the interim? Um, well, what ended up happening is I uh, wrote a couple nonfiction books, actually. I went from doing, I just had, you know, a lot of, you know, I think luck and, and hard work. I went from freelancing for alternative papers to um, freelancing for, you know, more, uh, widely read publications. I did some work for the New York Times Magazine, that sort of thing. And I wrote a couple nonfiction books. Um, but then what ended up happening is I had adopted these kids from foster care. And so about 2007, I found myself a single mom of three special needs kids. And the bottom was kind of falling out of the journalism industry, oh. as you know. <laughs> and I, I needed a day job, actually. Uh, and so I had met people that had done this kind of work as a reporter, and I was fascinated by it because I had, frankly, never heard of it before. You know, you, you kind of hear about detectives and prosecutors, and you don't hear about death penalty investigators. And, I, you know, I honestly, I just really wanted to do it. I thought it would be more rewarding than journalism, and it, and it has. I mean, you, it's, you get to dig so deep and, and to really kind of uncover the truth of people and the untruth of why something happened is is just an amazing thing. Well, yeah, and like this is, I mean, because you read about these things in the paper, or you'll hear about some horrific crime that's been committed. Somebody killed somebody or multiple somebodies. They wind up on death row. And I think sometimes the impulse can be, well, this person is just evil. And, may, you know, I, I guess some people would argue that that's the case, that there's evil in the world and these people embody it. But I... I find myself uh, resisting that notion, or at least in the sense that, like, I, I think if, like, that person is evil, then, you know, we all are evil, and in, in this person it was just actualized. Does that make sense? Like, I, I feel like, Absolutely. It, like the potential exists within all of us for evil. The potential exists within all of us for good. And in some people, whether it's neurochemistry or environmental circumstance or some combination thereof, um, you know, they wind up doing dark things. And for others of us, you know, we go in the other direction, but you know, what have you learned about people? You know, somebody does something really horrific and then you go start investigating, you know, their life to make sure that, I guess what you're trying to do is make sure that they really did it. Is that the job? Yeah. 
So I'm trying to, there's, there's kind of twofold. There's fact investigation, which is to make sure they really did it. Um, and then there's, I, I tend to specialize more in what's called mitigation investigation. And that, the point is to learn all about the client. I consider, you know, the good, bad, the ugly. Uh, what the attorneys are looking for is some reason that a judge or jury would extend mercy. And the best possible outcome in those situations is you get your client off death row or you keep them from getting executed and they spend the rest of their lives uh, behind bars. That's the best case. So that's the best case. That's a victory in this field, Um, which is why, you know, we joke you're not exactly, you know, sprinkling unicorns and sunshine around. (laughs) Well, <laughs> but, yeah, uh, but you know, yeah. it seems like it's important work. Like, do you have strong feelings about um, the legality of the death penalty? You know, I've, I part of the job. You know, I, I spend a lot of time with people that are horribly affected by these crimes, um, including sometimes the families of victims. And I, I've had to. You know, I'm, I'm too close to people's grief and sorrow to to not honor why people support. Penalty, you know, I, I I respect and honor kind of all views and opinions on it. You know, of course, I see some you know different problems with it, but I you know I, I think there's a problem with our society of people kind of rushing to condemn each other's viewpoints before we really sit down and listen to each other and understand each other. And that's actually the one thing about this job you mentioned. You know, getting to really understand why these crimes happen and. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I think we have this kind of myth of the Hannibal Lecter, you know, right. myth of the myth of the super brilliant sociopath, and that's maybe easier in some ways to understand than the more complex truth. Um, yeah, what is the truth? Like, I mean, because like the, the other thing is like there's the brilliant sociopath, like Hannibal Lecter type character, but then there's just like the evil monster, like somebody mm-hmm. somebody who's just completely like just batshit crazy and. Um, does horrible things. Born bad. Yeah, born bad, has no remorse, and is just cold-blooded, and it's a monster. Like, do, what do you think of that? Well, you know, one time I was working with these cases, and I had a homicide detective comment to me very sadly. He said, you know, what bothers me is not the ways that they're different, but the ways that they're the same. And, you know, I can tell you, you know, doing this kind of work, you know, and, you know, I go out and talk to people that knew this person since a young child, since a baby, you know, and in just about every case I've ever worked, there's this background of horrible abuse and neglect. Right. Um, and a lot of times, uh, you know, yeah, I'll go back and track down a kindergarten teacher, the first grade teacher who describes a, a sweet, tender-hearted little boy. Oh. Um, and then you go forward a couple more years and you find their sixth grade teacher and the eighth grade teacher, and then you just you keep digging and digging. And you, you know, I, I find records of, you know, that were buried in basements that describe all the bruises and the broken bones. And, you know, it's, I, so I, I guess I would say in my experience, you know, I, I haven't, I have yet to meet the client that's the brilliant sociopath or, or the monster that was born that way. Um, you know, instead you, you just find the outcome of people that grow up um, just being, you know, experiencing terrible things, and they and maybe, and maybe also and, and maybe also having um, some faulty wiring. You know, like I think that's sometimes a part of it. Like people who have mental health issues, regardless, you know, it, 
Um, or am I incorrect in saying that? Like if somebody's got like a, de- a depressive personality or they're bipolar or they're, they've got schizophrenia and then you couple that with abuse, like that can be a bad combination. Yeah, sometimes it's almost like the, the perfect storm. Uh, you know, people, I think, you know, we have this, this social kind of obsession with crime and violence. So you, all the television shows and a lot of the novels tend to be focused on extremely graphic crimes. But, you know, many of the cases I work are actually, you know, um, a drug dealer shoots somebody, another drug dealer, that sort of thing, uh, which is not to condone or excuse it. Um, but you have clients that, yeah, they, you know, a lot of these people, you know, were born um, to mothers that were drinking and drugging while pregnant. You know, they, they, a lot of them born with learning disabilities and different challenges. A lot of them have mental health issues that kind of crop up, and then they're growing up in poverty and you know, mess towns and, you know, just pretty much every strike against you sort right. of situation. Right. Yeah. You so, know, I, I think about it. Like I'm not, I'm, I'm against the death penalty. Uh, like if I had to cast a vote, I would say no. Like, mm-hmm. you know, even though like I, you know, if someone were to do something horrible to somebody I loved, I think that there, I can understand how there might be like the, uh, the desire to see like the ultimate punishment meted out. Like I can understand that emotionally, but I, I worry that like, you know, if we do that, we've, we sink to the level of the perpetrator. Do you know what I'm saying? Like there's gotta mm-hmm. be, we have to be better than that. Like, uh, I don't know. Yeah. That's how I feel. About no, I, think- it. I, I worry about the brutality mm-hmm. of it. And I worry about also the doing it to people who are, who happen to be wrongly convicted, which does happen, which is uh, horrific to think about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the other part of it is people, you know, one thing I see is here in Oregon, we give people the death penalty, but we don't generally ever execute them. Um, so, and this is true in other states, people, and especially if you're going to give people appeals processes, people will stay on these death rows for decades, and they're just waiting endlessly to be killed. Um, and has got to be, yeah, that, that's an intense, that's an intense existence. Yeah, and it's also tremendously, they might go through repeated trials, and, you know, I, the, then the victim's family has to go through it over and over again. So, I, you know, I agree. I think that I, I completely honor and respect people's emotional support for it. But, you know, being close to it, I see a lot of the, I don't want to put it, <laughs> the, the problems in the system, even if you supported it, you know, when you're actually going to, um, you know, uh, play it out and to do it it becomes a very imperfect thing yeah and i just i think it's just like killing to show that killing is wrong doesn't make sense to me i think that's my bottom line and i as hard yeah. as it may as hard as it may be emotionally to you know for the victim's families to know that that person's still alive like if they're locked up and paying their dues like you know there was somebody who said um i remember reading something somewhere where, where someone was like the reason i'm against the death penalty is we don't know what happens when you die like for all we know um, we're giving these people a party, you know, like, like I want to know that they're in a, you know, in a prison cell thinking about this for the rest of their life, you know, and that's a guarantee of punishment. Um, mm-hmm. so, I mean, that, I guess that's, yeah. one, that's another way to look at it. Uh, you know, so. Yeah. And that's the, that's the stuff you talked about with, and, you know, that, you know, explore some of that in the novels, you know, how brutality perhaps can create brutality. You know, if you look at the prisons and the, the people and, you know, when when do we, de- you know, become brutal ourselves in the system? Yeah. I mean, that's the thing is that uh, 
I don't know. I, I, I guess it's like a really deep instinct in me that, that opposes it. I think that, you know, at, at different levels of being, I can understand why, why you would want it. But I think at like my, my best self is anti or something like that. And, uh, I also look around at the rest of the world, you know, we're one of the few countries, like we don't have great company in terms of countries that, that still, you know, use the death penalty. It's like Saudi Arabia and China and us. And, you know, like most, <laughs> mo most of, most of the civilized world has done away with it. And, uh, I think that's a sign as well. I mean, you know, that we should consider in the States. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's been a couple of States, including Oregon that have issued moratoriums and the governor here did a moratorium, which is fascinating because as soon as he's no longer governor and somebody else steps into the helm, they can resume. So I'm not so sure how effective that is, but it, um, I'm sure sends a, a signal. You know, it's interesting to me because, you know, I, being involved in the work, I mean, it's a, it's incredibly expensive as well. Um, yeah. Time-consuming, expensive. You know, isn't, um, it, isn't it more expensive to have somebody on death row than it is to incarcerate them for life? Isn't that? I've, I think so. I've yeah, read, I've read yeah. That the cost. I guess it must be related to the appeals processes, or. Yeah, it's actually, you know, I'm, I work for Indigent Defense Services, so it, it's not, we, we joke that the pay is indigent, and, and I'm not <laughs> kidding, but but still, you know, to, to go through the appeal process repeatedly is, is just wildly expensive, um, you know, and again, putting people through this over and over and over again. You know, my focus tends, because of my job and, and my work, you know, I think I would like to see, you know, more of a focus turned on on actually learning why people do these things so that we can talk about more of issues of prevention and, you know, how we can keep these things from happening. Right. Do you have any ideas there? Well, you know, it's you know, we were talking about, you know, the backgrounds of abuse and neglect. I mean, I think there's a lot of stuff there. I'm very interested, you know, in, you know, a lot of what I see and from my own background as well is, how is it that some people do survive um, troubled backgrounds and end up not doing um, terrible things as well? And, you know, looking at those kind of issues of resiliency and and the factors that help people see hope and optimism beyond their current circumstances. Yeah, I mean, I, so. wonder, I wonder about that, too, because you hear stories. You know, it's like, like you, you yourself are an example of this. You come from a <laughs> difficult background. You've managed to transcend it. Other people might come from a less difficult background, but they get pulled under. The other people might mm -hmm. come. Other people might come from, uh, you know, an, an even worse background, and you know, you see different stories. And it's an interesting question, and I, I can't imagine that there's one answer. You know, like um, some of it's genetic, maybe. You know, you just have better equipment to deal. Some of it might be uh, due to luck. You know, you manage to fall in with the right people at the right time, or you manage mm -hmm. you manage to find a library at the right time. Um, but you know, I wonder if there's anything systemically that we could do, you know, as a society to try to provide a, uh, you know, a, a safety net or a bulwark against, uh, you know, the kinds of things you're talking about, you know, in communities that are really at risk, like what, can you go into these yeah. really at risk communities and provide centers or after school programs or something to give these people support? Yeah. You know, you got to wonder what it would look like, you know, and where it would come from. Like, do you think it comes from the top down, from the government, or do you think it's got to be done locally, you know? Yeah, and that's a, it's, a, it's one of those words that probably gives politicians hives because it's, it's complex. You know, I, a lot of what I see is, 
the effect, you know, I thought about this more than once because my cases are here in Oregon, and, you know, we've had the decline of the timber industry, um, the lack of any more, you know, this, these used to be really wonderful working-class areas where you could raise a family uh, doing blue-collar work, and like most places in the country, that's disappeared. So people have become very transient, um, very poor. You know, a lot of times, you know, one thing that that's often jumps out to me over and over again doing this work is, and I think it's a profound thing, it's how often people move. And so you have kids that might have, and I'm not exaggerating, children that have attended, these clients have attended 10 or more schools before the eighth grade. And I think that there's, there's got to be this, this uprooting that happens, this, this lack of having your soul or your conscience, or your hope, or optimism kind of tethered to anything. Um, you know, these, these guys don't have any chance to really develop a sense of community, or belonging, or ownership, well, you know, yeah, being just, kind to anybody. I was going to say, like, that's that sounds hard for anybody, regardless of circumstance, but it's got to be especially difficult for a child who's coming from a rough background, you know, to be moved around like that, because mm-hmm. I, I think what you're hitting on is really important. I think it's something that, you know, has gotten lost in... Uh, you know, to a to a pretty considerable degree over the last century or whatever, which is like that sense of community. Uh, I I think about this a lot, like wanting a hometown, wanting to have um, a sense of belonging to a place and to a community of people. Um, it's not easy to do, uh, you know, especially, yeah. especially for writerly types who tend to work alone. You know, it, um, but I think it's so important. I think it's critical to human health. I think it's critical to child. Uh, development and then the, the health of a child, you know, to have that sense of grounding, you know, not that changing scenario or changing scenery can't be uh, healthy as well. You know, I think moving, which I did as a kid was really good for me because it forced me to, you know, to kind of, uh, improvise and learn new things and make mm-hmm. new friends and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, ten- were you an army brat? No, I wasn't, but it was, you know, it's a couple moves and, yeah, you know, but it was, it was a big deal, you know, in my childhood. And I think that, that's a good thing, but ten schools, you know, in childhood, that seems that seems extreme. And then you couple that with the fact that there's abuse going on at home, and maybe not the greatest, um, you know, no money and no, you know, no real yeah. support system, and that's just a bad recipe. Yeah, exactly. And you have, you know, especially because you probably, I'm, I'm guessing, had some sense of community with your your immediate family. Oh, sure. You guys yeah. probably, you, yeah, you moved and probably took the same Thanksgiving tradition onto the next house and right. the same Easter. And you know, if you have a kid that's not really doesn't have a sense of, of safety or community with their family and they're moving and they really don't have anybody to kind of tether themselves to as, um, you know, as a sense of security and, and a sense of future. And, um, you know, I think about my childhood and, you know, as imperfect as my community was, at least I had one. Um, and, you know, so that's something that, you know, I've seen consistently. And I think there's, you know, so many issues like that we could look at and examine and, actually do meaningful work, hopefully, to to help kids, you know, because, you know, I, I do feel that, you know, people, when I'm looking at, at my cases, you know, these are, you know, monsters that are made and not born. Mm-hmm. And let's talk about them. Like, you know, as, as part of your work, do you interface with the actual criminals on death row? Yes. Yes, actually. So, you know, a big part of the job is I go out and I conduct this investigation into their lives. They're really basically learning their story, their whole story, down through extended generations. I'll go find 
grandparents and I just did the whole family story and their story. So part of that is not just going and finding these witnesses, but I spend time with the clients themselves, either on death row or if they're in a jail cell waiting for trial. And um, it's actually a very critical part of my work because I create this kind of safe place for them to tell me their secrets. So um, it's very important to me that I kind of learn the truth of this person, you know, and that's that includes the, the bad stuff. You know, I'm not there to minimize what they've done. Well, or that, to but what about what about over. what about the personal? interaction and the personal relationship that you develop and how you balance that against professional uh, professionalism, you know, because regardless of whatever monstrous thing this person has done, when you're sitting across from someone, um, and especially if they're contrite and if they have some degree of remorse, you know, um, and you can see their human suffering, you know, you feel for them. And I'm imagining that you can develop positive feelings for a person who might have killed somebody, you know, like, how do you, do you ever find yourself becoming friends? You can't allow that, right? You can't, in your professional role, you have to sort of keep a certain distance. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I think it's, that's really critical. And it's interesting to me because there's not very many people that do my kind of work. Um, kind of a handful of us here in Oregon and we're almost all to a fault women who are in our forties and fifties and have come from backgrounds with a lot of life experience. And I think one that kind of makes you strong enough to do this work and, and also kind enough because it takes a lot of kindness. Um, you know, I really have to be present and kind of absorb a lot of people's pain and, and have be open to it. Um, but at the same time, you have to have really strong boundaries. Uh, and I have done foster care as well, and I think that's helped as well. I mean, I I'm capable of being open to somebody, um, but also maintaining, you know, my own kind of um, integrity, if that's a good way to explain it. It's kind of difficult to explain, but yeah, I, I can't become emotionally attached. I can't become their friend or a surrogate family member because my job is to know the truth of them. So I can't become um, biased. So, okay. So when you're, um, when you're dealing with this much negativity... You know, mm-hmm. you, like negative energy, whatever you want to call it. Very sad stories, very a lot of pain. Mm-hmm. Um, that sort of stuff I find is uh, contagious. You know, mm-hmm. like if you're around somebody, you can, you can be around a friend who's really bleak <laughs> or who happens to be embittered and dark and, you know, in some sort of dark place. And you're around them for an hour and you walk away and you can feel it inside of you. Like it, it jumps over into your body somehow. and. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that it's gotta be especially the case when you're dealing with stuff at this level of darkness. And so, uh, like, how do you, how do you take on that pain without letting it take you over? That's, you know, that's, that's a really good question. And I think what you're saying is, is absolutely the truth. You know, you know, how when you around somebody that's really depressed or really sad and it's almost like it changes the air in the room. Yeah. You know, you kind of you, you if your soul is is at all open to other people, you 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 absorb it, and I and that's true of me. You know, I try to be really open with myself, and I one reason I like doing this work is is honestly I think that's a strength I have, and I tell myself before I go talk to people, you know, I I remind myself, I say, you know, Renee, you have a big heart, and your heart's big enough to fit their pain inside of it, and I think that's kind of true for all of us if we if you if we're kind of aware of it and we kind of claim it and so well, you know I'm, I'm just very aware of it that that's going to happen and i let it happen yeah 
Well, I mean, that's admirable. And I, I think like there's such a sadness in me when I think about, um, I, you know, human beings are reflect, I think almost like hardwired to kind of turn away from suffering, you know, even among their mm -hmm. friends, like their friends are depressed. It's like, Ooh, get away. Like, come back, <laughs> come back to me once you've dealt with this, you know? And I think it's a matter of reflex. I think some people do just don't have the capacity because they themselves are dealing with depression mm -hmm. or, or some sort of like uh, afflicted state. And it's such a, it's such a shame because it's the exact opposite of what needs to happen. You know, mm -hmm. when you're around somebody who's in a lot of pain, like they need someone to embrace them, you know, if not physically, then at least like in terms of being a human presence there who, with some compassion and yet people struggle. And what happens is everybody walks out the room or turns their back or, you know, it happens a lot. And I think that's, mm -hmm. I think that's, uh, not good. <laughs> Yeah, it's well, I think yeah, it's it's hard to sit in discomfort with someone, and you know, and, and I, that's something that I think you know in, in the past I certainly couldn't have done, but particularly you know having adopted from foster care, I I think I've just gotten very comfortable with you know my my kids have their private stories which are very painful, and you know once you, you, I think from the distance you think oh I can't handle that that's scary, but once you do it you like you you very quickly realize you know what this is okay. This is and and then then you kind of start feeling kind of blessed by it. But it's like, oh, I, I get to be part of this person's life, including their pain, and we're all going to be stronger for it. And um, that perhaps that, that might sound kind of woo woo, and I'm not a woo woo person, but um, no, I it, get it. You know, yeah, it's it's you know. Then you know the other part of the work, though, that's actually the part that really is amazing for me is getting to witness all the beautiful things that kind of come out of these situations, you know, the courage people have, uh, the goodness that people have, um, you know, especially I'm always just amazed at how people can find beauty and magic and hope and all these wonderful things, even when they're in these despairing circumstances. And that's just been kind of a revelation to me. You mean that you mean the people on death row or do you mean the victims families or I guess both? Everybody, yeah, everybody involved. You know, the the men on death row who start telling me how they're learning how to read, and you know, they're suddenly, effusively, you know, kind of explain, oh, I'm learning how to read, and you know, or um, they're, you know, there's people that have been in isolation prison cells who've learned how to mix paint by um, grinding up their food with water and painting the walls of their cells, and you know, and the, the families that often you know, are going through this, I mean, grief beyond anything we can imagine, and yet they also will exhibit this huge courage and ability to, to you know, survive and to find hope and, and joy. And those are the, the parts of the job that just kind of floor me, and I, I feel so lucky to be part of or to get to kind of bear witness to them. Sure. Now, uh, with regard to the, your children and uh, the, mm -hmm. deci the decision to, as a single woman, uh, adopt three kids out of out of the foster care program, like how did you mm -hmm. get to that decision? Uh, you know, honestly, I, I there was a point in my twenties I, I knew I wanted to have kids. Uh, you know, from my own life experience, knew that there were. I was never removed and put in foster care myself, though I, I probably should have been. Um, but I had friends that were, and, you know, knew that, that there are, you know, I don't want to get preachy, there's a lot of kids in foster care. Um, so I, I knew there were kids that needed homes, and I, I kind of knew I wanted to be a parent, and 
I didn't have the slightest interest in doing it myself. So to me, it, it, it seemed like this win-win situation. I, and so I remember going around and telling my friends, oh, I'm going to adopt kids from breast cancer. I was quite surprised that some people had a negative view of it because, you know, I called it the no stretch mark method. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I, it actually was the best thing I ever did. I, I My kids are just, you know... I'll stop myself from bragging about them, but they're, they're wonderful kids and did you do, have given did you me do a three, lot more. Did you do a three at mm-hmm. once or did you do them in, you didn't do three at once? I started them, yeah. Okay. I did one, a couple of years later got another. Now the third one is saying he wants he wants more. They're kind of like potato chips. You just <laughs> get started, <laughs> you can't stop. Are you going to do another one? Oh, oh I'm going to commit myself. Well, <laughs> I'm, yeah, we're, I, I, I'd like to. You're in negotiations. I, I mean, I'm the yeah the well the yeah the the negotiation slash commitment thing. I'm 46 now, so um, I don't know how old you are, but you start looking at that that clock of like ooh, you know, and, and you know maybe an older kid. Um, well, that was the thing. You, did you adopt all these your three uh, current children when they were infants, or how old were they when you became the uh, mother? Generally, uh, toddlerish. You know, there's not very many infants in foster care, um, but they were all younger. I fostered as well, so um, I've uh, fostered one of their siblings for a year. Um, kind of my long-term plan was actually I was my long-term plan was to to raise the ones I have, and when I get to be an empty nest, I'd like to foster pregnant teenagers because um, I think that teaching a teen mom because there's teen moms in foster care are pregnant, and then it's, you know teaching her how to parent is would be rewarding. And kind of what we talked about, kind of effective ways to kind of stop um, situations from, you know, continuing. Yeah, I was going to say, stop the perpetuation of it. So, yeah. So what about, okay, three three foster kids, uh, you know, the work that you do as a death penalty investigator, is that is that what it's called, death penalty investigator, death row investigator? Yes. So you're doing that as your day job, and then how do you find time to write uh, fiction? Um. I was joking that I was going to dedicate the book to coffee. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, you know, it's the the novel, I wasn't expecting to, to write a novel as I was living in the prison one day and, you know, heard this very distinctive voice. And, you know, the, the voice said, you know, this is an enchanted place. And I just kind of followed it into the novel. Um, honestly, you know, a, a lot of real late nights, staying up all night, just kind of getting carried away into the story, being inside the story. Um, it, it was really beautiful. It was, it was such a, a kind of a magical experience to be inside that the the, the novel. I've been kind of grieving since it, it ended. But how, how long did it take you to write it? Uh, you know, it's kind of slow. It's all slow going at first because it, it's a very just the narrator's voice is very distinctive, and I had a hard time kind of getting to the right place to hear it. But then the floodgates opened up, and I just took my laptop with me everywhere. I would pull over the side of the road, like I'd be out trying to find somebody in a trailer court somewhere, and I'd pull over the side of the road and just write. And so, it, like, the total was actually only 10 months or so. Because um, by the end, I would, it was just kind of pouring. These floodgates kind of opened up, and, and what, I was so writing nonstop. What, what triggered it again? You heard you were in the prison, and you heard a voice? Yeah, I uh, actually was leaving the, the prison where they have the death row in Oregon, and it's this very old stone prison. It's uh, kind of an old stone fortress, and I remember I was leaving. It was a real beautiful day. I was out walking to my car, and I turned to look at these kind of stone walls, and I heard this very distinctive voice 
and the voice said, this is an enchanted place. Um, which, sorry, which, I just, which, yeah, which, which you wouldn't normally think of when you're looking at a death row penitentiary. <laughs> <laughs> no, you wouldn't. But it's, it's the, narrator's, the narrator believes it's an enchanted place, and, and for him it, it is. And, um, you know, and it's a story not just about the narrator's belief that it was, you know, he was an enchanted place, but, you know, kind of I think that enchantment of life that can exist for all of us, which I really, truly believe. Even somebody on death row. Even, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's that's kind of what I've seen in my life. And, you know, I think it's it's true whether, you know, we're on death row or, you know, people, you know, the novel kind of explores too how, you know, I think we all kind of live in, or we can live in kind of prisons of our own making, you know, whether it's our fears or our shames. Or I don't know what you're talking whatever. about. <laughs> you, you don't at all? No, no, I, um, I kid, I kid. Uh, but, I know. So, you know, you hear these stories sometimes about people on death row who experience, some, like, you know, these really intense, obviously it's a lot of intense suffering and you're locked in mm-hmm. this cell and you're in isolation and, you know, you could be dead any day or whatever, you know, it's just very... Um, psychologically intense existence. And you do hear these stories every once in a while about somebody on death row who experiences, uh, as a result, I think, of this kind of crucible uh, existence, a kind of like spiritual awakening or like, did you ever, have you ever been around somebody on death row who struck you as being uh, of that ilk? You know, somebody who had kind of, I don't know, come full circle or uh, reconciled with themselves or made peace somehow or realized some deeper level of being and um, mm-hmm. accepted their circumstances and, um, you know, and felt genuinely remorseful. And I don't know, does that exist or is that just some sort of like, like what's the movie with uh, Tom Hanks and the Green Mile? You know, I guess. The Green Mile. <laughs> uh, in, you know, yes and no. I think people, you know, I've seen people try to wrestle with it as much as they're capable of. I think there's an element, too, of, you know, when you've done something that's really terrible, I mean, how do you come to terms with yourself? And how do you accept that kind of psychic damage? Um, But, no, I've seen that. I think that there's, you know, sadly, there's people that kind of wake up after it's over. Um, They kind of wake up to themselves and wake up to the world and what they've done. and, And then for the rest of their existence, they, they have to kind of deal with it. Um, and that's kind of part of the, the pain we talked about. It's like, how, how do you deal with it? Um, yeah, how do you having done something unimaginably horrible and, and some people find faith, I think. And hey, do, they um, ever, do they ever like, I mean, is somebody, have you ever heard of somebody on death row who wakes up in the manner that you're talking about and has the time? And, and frankly, like, I mean, this is going to sound maybe horrible, but like the peace because it, yeah, it's you know it's isolation and it's a really regimented and bleak existence inside of a prison. But you know it might be a less turbulent and violent existence than the one they were living outside. So maybe that facilitates them being able to kind of like wake up a little bit. I mean, have you ever had somebody who does that on death row and then you know realizes the error of their ways and reaches out to? Uh, victims' families in a really substantive way in an eff- effort to reconcile, or is that even possible? No, I think it, it's possible. In fact, there, there's a, a bit of there's more of a move now for victim um, offender reconciliations. They have like a, you can do it now in a 
it, it happens more like in non-death row situations, but they have programs where the victims and the offenders can kind of get together and reconcile. A lot of times, these things are with people that know each other, actually. You know, most crimes are actually committed against people that, you know, um, know each other. You know, I've seen what you're describing more in the arrest phase, and I, I work those cases where somebody gets arrested for, for, like, say, killing his best friend, and they decide it's going to be a capital case, a death penalty case, and the, the lawyer's are called to action, assigned to the case, and then the lawyers call up somebody like me and say, can you work this case? And then I might be one of the first people. The, the attorneys usually go first, but then you show up at the jail, and the clients, in a perhaps in a suicide smock or, or whatever, in a segregation cell, and they're waking up to what they did. You know, maybe they'd been on a meth and alcohol binge for three weeks. Or I think the saddest cases are when somebody had a psychotic episode. Yeah. And that's, I can't describe how absolutely heartbreaking that is. Um, just because they were, somebody, they were just out of their head. They had no idea what they were doing. and Yeah. And they get the proper medications. You know, maybe they're a schizophrenic and they're having a, a, a huge psychotic episode. And they started thinking God was telling them that. X, Y, and Z, um, and they get medicated and they wake up to what they did, and, and that can it can just be absolutely heartrending to experience and to witness. Oh my God! Have you ever felt in, in danger when you're talking? I mean, I guess you're probably on, like, how do you talk to these people? They're in they're behind bars, and you're on the other side of the bars, or you're on mm -hmm. the, you're on the other side of a window. Like, what what what's the protocol for? Uh, you know, somebody in your job yeah. or your line of work talking to somebody who's potentially like a, a dangerous criminal? Um, well, on, on the death row, the situation's um, somewhat like the, the character called the lady describes in the novel where there's a couple of choices. The, the person can be chained in a cage. Um, they have a cage that looks an awful lot like the cage in Silence of the Lambs. Um, or else they're in a tiny little concrete box of a room, which I don't care for, and they're behind safety glass, um, and you're on the other side. I mean, in general, you're not allowed to touch. There's no contact. And I always, I actually have never felt unsafe because usually the clients or the inmates are chained and manacled, and, you know, this, the, the prisons are, can be pretty safe places. I should knock on wood when I just said yeah, right. <laughs> I just doing, knocked on wood. I did too. I did too. I did too. But, uh, the next time I go, there'll probably be a riot and I'll be stuck inside. So I, 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 I just did it to myself at this point. Um, but what about, what, what about uh, actually, I mean, you said, you mentioned earlier in the conversation that Portland has death row, but doesn't execute. Like, so have you ever had to witness an execution? Uh, no, I have not. Uh, there hasn't been execution in Oregon for quite some years, and uh, I don't think I would, you know, that, that kind of stuff comes up in this, this work. If you do have a client that's going to be executed, you know, do you go and do you witness it? And that would be very difficult for me. I'm one of those people that would have a very hard time. Yeah, me too. That sounds like that sounds about like the worst thing I could possibly have to witness is, you know, somebody being killed like ritually killed by other people I mean, and just ew. yeah, I feel, yeah. If, if i feel like it violates some deep like some really deep instinct in me you know like mm -hmm. i couldn't do it i don't think and you know so i'm glad there you was a warden that came out recently about that who 
who who has actually come out saying how incredibly hard, and that's what I've heard too. It's it's hard on all the the prison staff. I mean, it's it's not an easy thing for people to do. It, it devastates them. Well, no, I was just going to say, like, uh, you know, you you even hear stories about people who work on the floor of slaughterhouses and like the the food industry. You know, mm-hmm. uh, people who have to kill chickens or pigs or whatever, and like they are psychologically damaged by it in a real way. Like it's just, again, I think it violates some deep thing in us to do that. And uh, I think when you actually have to confront it and participate in it, it's different than when you're at a remove from it and it's happening behind stone walls and you just kind of hear about it on the news in passing. But mm-hmm. uh, I don't know. That's a. I'm glad you haven't had to witness that because that would be that would make your job like. Uh, yeah, I don't. I don't know if I could do that. Actually, I might be the kind of person. I mean, we're allowed to to say no. Um, well, that's good. You know, but I, you know, my heart actually goes out to and, and I've done this with prison staff. I mean, there's a lot of good people. There's bad people that work in prisons. There's good people too. And you know, I think it would just be really hard to to make people do something like that. And, yeah, if that's your job. You know, like especially in like Texas, where they actually they execute like a person a day. You know, whatever it is. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. You know, but they're super. Uh, you know, happy to do it down there. It seems like, and uh, I, I can't even imagine. Like that's your job. You go to work, and you got to like, well, we got to knock somebody off today, or whatever. And, mm-hmm. You know, and listen, they did something horrible. They left left behind like a wake of destruction, and um, you know, many victims and everything else. So you don't want to minimize that. But um, can't they just stay in in jail for the rest of their lives and just eat bad food mm-hmm. and think about it? And you know, like. That seems like pun. That seems like a pretty harsh punishment to me, but to some people, yeah. I guess it's not. Well, I think, yeah, I think that when in in reality, it's, it is a terribly harsh punishment. And my experience is, and the, again, this is just my experience, but it, it lets you know the victims' families and people move on. You know, I don't know if there is such a thing as closure, but at least they don't have to go through the trauma of going through trial after trial again and again. And and you know the the, the that's only experience that seems to prolong that trauma for, you know, years. Yeah. Well, and, and like, I guess one last question would be, uh, has mm-hmm. the, has the work that you've done ever led to, um, somebody being, uh, exonerated? Is that the right word? You know, where somebody, where it flips, like you find out mm-hmm. that the, the person is innocent. Uh, you know, like walked off the row. Yeah. Um, well, the work I've done has led to people not getting executed, but not walking out of prison, if that answers it. I haven't, you know, had a case where somebody was exonerated as innocent. Um, but I have had cases where people were not executed because of my work. Have you, have you ever felt that somebody should have been exonerated, but it just didn't happen in the system? Or have you just, the people that you've dealt with have, have been pretty guilty. <laughs> well, you know, I've had a couple cases where, you know, we talked about somebody having a psychotic break, you know, that's, you know, and those, those people I've, I've had, you know, what do you call it? Guilty except for insanity. And I've had those cases where we, you know, it was, it, I was able to show this person was, it was clear this person was mentally ill. And so they go to mental hospitals instead of prison, that sort of thing. Um, yeah, you know, you don't have, there There are, you know, I don't doubt for a minute, there are what people consider innocent people, um, and, you know, the facts are, are often not quite what people assumed. Um, but, you know, I, I would never want to be one of those people that deny that these bad things happen either. Right. Well, I mean, it's got to be, it's got to be convincing either way. You know, if you're going to put somebody on death row, you should have 
pretty, ir- you know, you should have irrefutable evidence that they did it. And if you're going to try to get somebody uh, um, exonerated, you should have pretty uh, airtight evidence that they didn't, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And if somebody, you know, did it, then it's important, I think, I think for us to understand what exactly they did and, and why and how it happened. And, you know, if we, I think, really kind of opened our hearts and minds to that, we'd get a better understanding of crime and violence and you know, maybe be able to do some more to, to prevent it. Well, I think that sounds like the perfect note to end on. I, uh, <laughs> I congratulate you on this novel. I, and I also uh, commend you for the work that you do. I mean, and, and the adopting oh. the kids, like it's, it's uh, admirable and I wish you well, um, you know, both with, with work and, and with your family. Oh, thank you so much. And if you're ever up in Portland, I hope you come up to St. John's. So I can give you the, the local author tour. I was going to say, you can, we, we, we can walk the row. It'll be great. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. I mean the tour of the neighborhood, not death row. <laughs> okay. Perfect. Thank you. Well, thanks for talking, Renee. <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. Thank you so much. Okay, you guys, there you go. That is Renee Denfeld. Go get her novel. It's called The Enchanted. It's out there now from Harper. You can find Renee online at ReneeDenfeld.com. She's also on the Facebook uh, thank you to Kill Rockstars, as always, for all the great music. Be sure to check out KillRockstars.com. Thanks also to Alexis Smith, the uh, Portland writer that I've spoken with on this program, whose name I forgot when I was talking to Renee. I called her Amber Smith. It's one of those things. Uh, I can't remember names all the time. I feel bad about that. It's Alexis Smith. Go check out her uh, her website. Go celebrate her. And don't forget to go get the app, the free official Other People app. Uh, It's the best way to listen to this program and to access premium content and the full archives. So what you do is you go get the app. Do that. Get the app. Please. (laughs) Uh, It really and truly is the best way to listen. It's available free of charge for your iPhone, iPad, iPod Touch, or Android device. You get uh, the most recent 50 episodes for free, which I think you know. So when you get the app, you can listen to the most recent 50 episodes. And then uh, on top of that, to access the archives, the other 200 some odd shows, you just sign up for premium right there in the app. It's two bucks, two bucks a month. Or uh, if that's too rich for your blood, five bucks for six months. How about that? And uh, if you want to go even cheaper, $9 for an entire year, less than a dollar a month. Come on, folks. And uh, once you do that, you have access to everything, every single episode, you can hear my conversations with authors like Cheryl Strayed, Jonathan Leatham, Ben Marcus, Ben Fountain, Susan Orlean, Edward Jadantica, and so on and so forth. So please go get the app. The app is free. And then please sign up for premium and support this program. I would be grateful if you did. Okay? So that was fun. I hope you enjoyed that. And I wish I could convey to you right now how tired I am. I really wish I could do that. I don't mean to complain. You know, I, I, uh, I know nobody likes a whiner. I'm just saying, I feel like I'm on something. I'm so tired. <laughs> you ever have those days? I feel like I just took a pill. Please remember that uh, Wallace Stegner died after an automobile accident and that Frida Kahlo had an affair with Leon Trotsky. That's it for now. Thanks again to Renee Denfeld. Go get her book. It's called The Enchanted. And uh, I'll be back uh, soon with another episode of this program. I'll be back on Sunday. Got some good ones, uh, some good conversations coming up. I'm going to go to sleep now, okay? I'm done. I could sleep on the floor. I could honestly drop to the floor right now and be asleep within five minutes. I'm not kidding you. That's how tired I am. It's not safe for me to drive right now. 
It's not safe for me uh, to be operating uh, heavy machinery.